If it isn't Katie Herzog, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, pretty good. Although I had a little bit of a health scare this week. Can I tell you about it? Only if it's gross. It's pretty disgusting. Okay, so I discovered last week that I have a sort of lump, like a divot and a lump on my pinky finger. And it just seemed to really come out of nowhere. And because I suffer from what's commonly referred to as hypochondria, I went ahead and I made a doctor appointment. And so I go into the doctor and the doctor looks at my looks at my hand and sort of touches it a little bit. And it turns out that this divot lump tumor thing in my finger is a result of my phone, the way that I hold my phone. I have Twitter finger. Oh, God, that's horrible. It is horrible. I am like permanently maiming myself because I spend so much time on my fucking cell phone. Is there a cure? Yeah, I just switched to my right hand. But then you're going to get Twitter fingers on your right hand. I will, but at least it'll be balanced that way. So you'll just be you'll be equally disfigured on each side. Exactly. That's what I want. As long as it's equal, as long as it's symmetrical, then it'll be fine. But yes, I'm curious about how many other people suffer from this affliction. So everybody take a look at your pinkies right now. And if you have a little lump on your pinky, it's possible that you need to put down your phone. Or it means you're gay. <laughs> or it means you're gay. That's also possible. <laughs> or you have finger cancer. Do you did you <laughs> did you guys have the uh <laughs> the the playground bullying thing with the buttercup where you grew up? No, what is that? I'm trying to remember exactly. It was like you you tell your friend, hey, you and this was in much more homophobic times. This was when I was like eight. The good old days. The good old things were so much better then. I mean, I could just do whatever I wanted. No, people would, you would like get your friend to hold a buttercup or a dandelion under their chin. And it was, I think it was, if the yellow reflects on your chin, that means you're gay. Ah. But then the whole point was to sort of take their hand and shove it up in their face and like smack them with themselves. So it was all just a, a cruel ruse. Okay, so we had a version of that, but it was if your hand is bigger than your head, you have AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> which which we now know is true, but at the time. It's true. The kids, you know, they're all right. The kids are all right. Ugh, more or less. Um, what... Uh, I, I am really not my Christmas today. I just got the vaccine, my first dose, a couple hours ago, but I I also got like no sleep. So I'm just going to be even worse than usual. I'm warning everyone. That said, what podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I am Jesse Single. And Katie, every week we say that this week's episode is special. We're always lying, except for this week. Yes, we have a very special guest today. He's a little bit problematic, just a little bit, but he's got a new book out, and I think our audience will be willing to overlook his many, many sins. His name is Jesse Single. Who the hell is that? Nobody's ever heard of him. Very little known. Very obscure. Our listeners have just been wailing and shrieking, dying for an episode that consists of me trying to get you to buy my new book. And we're going to do that. But first, would you like to hear a brief story about drama at a Queens climbing gym? I would like nothing more. <laughs> okay. So we got a email from a listener. I can't remember if he sent it to me or the, the Blotter Reported email address. Um, basically, our boy Dan, who... I guess this matters for the story. He says he he's white, but he's sort of Jewish, and, and he gets asked about his ethnicity a lot. So ethnically ambiguous. He's a member of a um, – uh, or he was a member of a set of climbing gyms called The Cliffs. There's a few different ones around New York City. You do, you climb, right? You seem like the sort of person who's into climbing. I go to a bouldering gym. I, I like mostly spend I spend most of my time staring at my phone and uh and, and further 
rupturing my, my pinky finger while I'm there, but I do go to a climbing gym. I don't know the difference between climbing and bouldering, and I don't really care. But the point is, he emailed us. One has ropes and one doesn't. Bouldering does not. So what happens if you fall when you boulder? You break a leg. That's fine. So this guy emailed me to say that um, his climbing gym, the Cliffs, put out a brave statement against white supremacy, like every other institution in the country. And Dan got into it a little bit on their Facebook page here, the two things he wrote. We demand more platitudes. How else will we know how the... I know. Uh, and, okay, I should just give a little context. This is the Long Island City Cliffs. Long Island City is like, it's Queens, but it's a very bougie part with like gleaming glass condo towers. The sorts of people who climb, rock climb at the cliffs in Long Island City are like very well-heeled liberal New Yorkers. This is where Amazon was going to put their their uh, their New York headquarters, right? Yep, until AOC caught wind of it and wasn't having it <laughs> against the wishes of a lot of like labor groups. So that's a different story. Right. Okay. Dan writes in response to one of these, uh, his climbing gym clarifying its stance on white supremacy being bad. We demand more platitudes. How else will we know how the Cliffs staff feel about violent hate crimes? While they're at it, I ask the Cliffs to denounce cancer, genocide, mistreatment of puppies, and every other awful thing that happens in the world every day. Get a grip, people. It's a freaking climbing gym, not the United Nations. I don't need a moralizing statement from them any more than I need to know my grocery store's position on sex trafficking or North Korea. <laughs> this is very good. <laughs> Some of us just want to climb and have a brief respite from all the world's problems. So, so far, I, Dan comes across as a hero so far, right? Oh, absolutely. And he said that climbing has actually been genuinely important to his mental health. People need exercise, especially during a pandemic. He then followed up a few minutes later, maybe five minutes later. If you don't feel safe at a left-wing, overtly woke climbing gym with a high percentage of Asian climbers and staff, i.e. pretty much every NYC climbing gym, without constant official platitudes, perhaps you should seek professional help. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't imagine a more pointless, redundant, and utterly unnecessary step than yet another virtue-pandering statement like the thousand before it. You have a better chance of being struck by lightning twice than encountering a bona fide white supremacist at an NYC climbing gym. Oh my god! I want to get this. Um, I want to get this entire thing put on one of those like yard signs. You know, the ones that say like "In this house, we believe." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the, this house, yeah. It's gonna be a very big yard sign. Uh, not long after that, uh, our boy Dan received an email from the Cliffs from an employee who I will name. Bleep McBleep, because I'm not going to blow him up by name. Hello, Dan. <laughs> Sorry. Hello, Dan. I'm reaching out regarding your recent comments on the Cliffs Community Facebook group, which do not reflect the community's values or the open culture that we strive to cultivate. Oh, open. Specific <laughs> it sounds very open. Spe specifically, your comments undermining other members of the community and their experiences. As such, we have made the ir irre irrefutable, irrefutable, Irrefutable? I can't pronounce anything anymore. Irrefutable. How are you an author? As such, we have made the irrefutable decision to ban you from our facilities to ensure that the spaces we provide are safe oh my God. for our community. We appreciate <laughs> your understanding of this matter and hope that this provides an opportunity for introspection and growth. Oh my God, that is amazing. That is amazing. So Dan has been banned from his climbing gym for thought crime, for hate crime. 
I emailed the specific person who sent him this and the Cliff's sort of general contact thing to try to get comment. I asked them what it was about his Facebook posts that they felt posed a threat to the safety of the other climbers. I did not hear back. I'm shocked. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, you can't have people disagreeing with your climbing gyms approach to white supremacy and fighting it on your Facebook page. I understand why Dan had to go. Uh, I hope you can find another climbing gym that's much more racist. You know, I hope that my gym does something like this, puts out some sort of statement because I've been looking for a way to get out of the contract. So I might just, they could put something out, I just cut and paste Dan's statement and then they'll kick me out and I won't have to continue paying $70 a month. I do feel bad for Dan. It sounds like climbing is important to him. Uh, I hope he can find another gym. I don't understand why a climbing gym would possibly think it's a good idea, even in New York City, to do something like this. But uh, that's where we are right now. Well, I think we both know why they would think that this would be a good idea. For the same reason that Doritos thinks that it's a good idea, or Crocs <laughs> thinks it's a good idea, or all of these companies thinks that it's a good idea to turn their uh, turn their company accounts into anti-racist platitude meme accounts. But it's also like, isn't not to always go back to this, but isn't climbing really expensive, like these memberships? I'm sure in New York it's more than I pay in my like dumpy town in Washington State, but yeah, it's definitely not cheap. It's it's probably standard gem rates, but yeah, I just I'm guessing these climbing gyms do not have a lot of like poor people in them. Oh, de- unless they have like scholarship problem programs, definitely not. Yeah. All right. Well, that was just a little story to get us warmed up. But the main reason we're here today is to talk about my book, which is not at all, with one exception, we'll get to in the back half of the show, culture war related. Can you imagine that? Me. Being interested in a subject that has nothing to do with the culture wars. Hugely disappointing, Jesse. The book is called The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. It is out Tuesday, April 6th. Uh, we're just going to talk about it a little bit. And I'm really hoping that if you're listening to this, you will consider pre-ordering or ordering it. First week sales make a really big difference. They send a signal to the publisher. Uh, and, and I hope you'll consider ordering it. So we're going to talk about two. I'm going to give the basic thesis of the book. Talk, and then we're going to talk about two chapters. Does that sound good? Any questions so far, Katie? Yeah, just one question. So I was sort of hoping that this would be a, a Naomi Wolf situation where like you're you're being interviewed by me and I point out that you've mistaken some term <laughs> that has uh, rendered your entire book absolutely worthless. That was my like my like great hope for for this episode. Unfortunately, I read the book and the only glaring error I noticed was that you thank Nick Claremont in the acknowledgments and not me. So I'm wondering, is it too late? to do a reprinting. By the way, I swear to God, you are now in there as my trusty podcast co-host. You have an earlier galley. You have been added. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Now I'm going to buy the book. Actually, the hard copy just arrived yesterday. I've been I've been reading the galley and now I have the hard copy, so I will not burn it. I was planning on burning it, but now that I know that I'm in there, I will not burn it. I also removed Nick Claremont because fuck that guy. <laughs> fuck that guy. I didn't need to for space. There was plenty of room, but I, I, it was really just sort of a in the moment uh, impulsive act. Sorry, Nick. Uh, well, he's Nick's handsome anyway. He's got that going for him. I did. There is the one. I do. I list the names of a lot of my friends uh, just because I'm very grateful for them. And there is one friend who I'm like sort of in a fight now, and uh, <laughs> I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> 
You need to go to the bookstore and take all of go, go get everyone every copy and sharpie out your friend's name. Hello, is this the Barnes and Noble at 86th and Broadway? Do you have a red pen? Okay, I'm an author, and I'm going to need you to cross out one name. Uh, <laughs> you know, whiteout might actually be more effective. That's true. Um, okay, so yeah, the book the book is basically. I like psychology. I like writing about it. I like reading about it. And when I was at New York Magazine, I was editing a section called Science of Us. And our job was to write about behavioral science. And I sort of began to realize that a lot of the behavioral science out there was questionable. You'd get this like exciting press release from Harvard or some other school saying like, oh my God, look at this incredible new finding. But I I had a little bit of a background in reading research papers just from going to grad school for public policy. And like, 75% of the time, what they said in the press release wasn't true. Uh, And and the real turning point in this was um, this guy reached out to me who had a research background of his own. And he was basically like, you know, the implicit association test, that test to measure your levels of uh, implicit bias, unconscious racism everyone's doing. There are a lot of statistical problems with it. That led me down this whole rabbit hole. I ended up writing like a 12,000 word piece for New York Magazine's website. But the long and the short of it is he was right. Like the IAT and a lot of the other ideas experts tell us are really important and really, you know, are magnifying glasses into human nature are just mostly wrong. And yet they make so much money. They redirect the national conversation on major issues. And that is what my book is about. Have you gotten any reviews yet? Yeah. No, they've they've generally been positive. There were a couple of the short capsule reviews that just were just like, basically, there's too many studies in it, uh, which mm. there are a lot of studies on it because it's, it's hard to describe this stuff. But we got some really, some nice ones too. And like, I got an amazingly kind blurb from Jonathan Haidt. Um, okay. So uh, you want to start with the chapter on PTSD, right? Yes. So... Um, Okay. Katie, you are familiar with PTSD from hosting a podcast with me? <laughs> yes. Uh, podcast traumatic uh, stress disorder. Yeah, I think people know the basics of PTSD, but basically like most people when they're uh, subjected to a traumatic event, it, it leaves an imprint on you. Uh, you can have anxiety symptoms. You can have sort of minor hallucinations, like flashbacks to it. For most people, those symptoms go away in time. Like people just recover naturally. And I think that's an important thing for people to realize because people assume if weird cognitive stuff happens to them after an event like that, like something's wrong with them or they have a mental illness. Um, most people recover. People who don't can develop PTSD, which is this like really crippling affliction where at its worst, a lot of things are triggered to you and you can't leave your house. So if you're a soldier and you were ambushed on a bridge, it might be hard for you to cross bridges. Like these guys really suffer. They'll, you know, they can't sit in a restaurant without having eyes on on two exits, stuff like that. Okay. You know, I can't cross bridges. Do you think I have PTSD? You can't cross bridges? Why not? I can't drive over bridges. I have panic attacks when I drive over bridges. Is that true? Yeah. It, and it's like it, like half of the women in my family have the same thing. I, yeah. I was At some point, I was I was thinking about doing a, a book about driving anxiety. Um, I never, obviously never did it. Um, might happen at some point. You know what? Just to reveal how fucked up my own brain is, I say this uh, in a non-stigmatizing uh, way, I have had sometimes a similar thing. Like in my early years in New York, I would love walking across a Manhattan bridge. And sometimes halfway through, I'd get this weird panic response. Um you know, walking across the bridge, I think is even more intense because you're just like out there. Uh, and what I did, which is sort of how I got over a minor fear of flying, is I just sort of like kept doing it. And I, I mean, it's like a version of exposure therapy, but I would, I would just realize like, okay, my heart is beating fast, but the bridge is not collapsing. I'm just dumb. I have a dumb, I have a dumb Jewish brain. I should say, especially since I'm trying to pitch you guys 
you listeners on a book about scientific misinformation, um, what I described of just like being like, I'm just going to walk across the bridge and go for it. If you had actual clinical level, like PTSD or anxiety symptoms, you, you would want to do that with like supervision from a, from an expert exposure therapy doesn't mean just hurling yourself out of the world toward whatever triggers you. It means there, there's a process there, but, um, exposure therapy is, uh, has some evidence behind it. Okay. So Katie, do you remember in 2003 when due to your neoconservative agenda, the nation launched a war in Iraq? Oh, yeah, I did that for sure. Your front page article for The Stranger, I think you would have been like 20 then. It was, we must invade Iraq. And then everyone was like, Katie has a good idea. Yeah, definitely. That was that was definitely me. A few years later, or by the late aughts at least, there were a lot of soldiers coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they were deeply traumatized. They had PTSD, and untreated PTSD is just a horrible, crippling affliction I would not wish on my worst Twitter enemy. It it, it sort of locks you in yourself. You're, you're victimized by these terrible symptoms. Uh, in the worst cases, people kill themselves. Uh, less frequently, they kill others. As is often a case, the homicides associated with PTSD got more media attention than the suicides, uh, even though they weren't as frequent. And the army realized it had a problem. Wait, and- Jesse, I want to interrupt you real quick. Do we know if the rates of PTSD in the post-9-11 wars were uh, vastly higher than rates after, say, Vietnam or World War II or anything like that? You know, I'm actually not sure. I bet it's easy to look up. I do think a lot of the diagnostic criteria have changed. Like PTSD did not become codified as a thing until the Vietnam era. Uh, that was because of a lot of activism on the part of veterans themselves. Uh, that's a good question. And it was called shell shock, right? Back in the day, it was called shell shock. And they had these like in some cases, quote unquote, treatments for it that were like close to torture because it was seen as a sign of character, uh, a character flaw. If you, they like fuck send you to the trenches in World War One, you get traumatized and then be, they'd be like, what's wrong with you? Why, why, why do you have these symptoms? Your brain must be broken. And there were some really brutal and ineffective treatments. So it was the Vietnam War that really tipped us over into a more scientific understanding of this stuff. Okay. So it's like 2007, 2008, the army realizes it has a crisis on its hands. What they end up doing is is hiring a guy named Martin Seligman, who is a godfather. Marty Seligman. He's a godfather of positive psychology. That's this field of psychology that's that's really only been around in this form since he was elected president of the American Psychological Association in 1998. The basic argument is that instead of only treating people who are sick, psychologists should help basically health pe- healthy people, you know, flourish and do better, which I, I find that pretty unobjectionable on its face, right? Like you don't want you don't want mental health expertise only spent on people who are like really, really suffering. Sure. Okay. So um the army hires Seligman to design a program to fight PTSD in the army, a universal program for all soldiers. He tells them that he already has this program called the Pen Resilience Program that he can adapt for the army. This is a program that's been around since the 90s, and and its basic design and goal is you give it to groups of kids between ages 10 and 14 in the hopes of preventing anxiety and depression just in general classroom settings. Can you can you identify any like immediate problems with the idea of applying that program to the military? I mean, it seems as though a 14-year-old in a classroom is a very different population than uh, soldiers being deployed to war. Yes, that is a major problem. Like how relevant is a program that you give to like kids who have too much homework or are dealing with bullying or boy and girl troubles? How relevant is that to give to an 18 or a 19 or 20 year old who you're about to send into an urban combat hellhole? There was like already a really big question about stretching the purpose of this program. 
That was one problem. The other problem was that by 2009, as the army is gearing up to make this a mandatory army program, the evidence has come in uh, about the Penn Resilience Program itself and has shown like it doesn't really seem to do much. Like it improves depression and anxiety symptoms a little bit. But there's a difference between like scoring a few points lower on a scale that measures a symptom and whether or not that really matters much in the real world. And that was basically what one of the co-creators of the PRP said is like, we're not we're not sure this even does anything for 10 to 14 year olds. I mean, this also presupposes that depression, that, that PTSD is just depression and anxiety. Yes. Yeah. The idea is that there was never a great reason to even think that it's targeting uh, PTSD and suicide, which were the things to target. Like, Trying to prevent anxiety and depression is one thing. Trying to prevent PTSD and suicide are actually another, even though there's some uh, overlapping there. And and there was just never really like a good reason to think that it works. But as I explained in my chapter, like the army was quickly won over by this and they made it a mandatory program. And it's now probably cost more than $500 million. This program that Holy had shit. no theoretical basis and no evidence it does anything. And soldiers had to waste huge amounts of time doing this stuff. And, and this is why like these debates about like scientific methodology and whether a paper's right or whether the rebuttal to it is right. It's so easy for sort of the average layperson to not think that stuff matters, but when bad, bad or, or half-baked science builds up and up and up, and there's a pile of it, you end up with stuff like this happening with institutions really investing in ideas that don't have much evidence behind them. And you know, we do have validated programs for treating PTSD. So, so part of, to me, what makes this so heartbreaking and arguably infuriating is like, imagine spending $500 million actually helping soldiers, soldiers with PTSD rather than on an unproven program to prevent that condition. Well, okay. So take us on a little journey here. How did this program, how did Marty Seligman's program um, become, you know, a half billion dollar waste of taxpayer money? He has a scene in one of his books called Flourish. Where, where General Casey, like this important decision maker in the army, uh, he's meeting with them. And Seligman says, we should pilot test this. That's where you like do a, a, a smaller version of the program for a small group of soldiers, see if it works. And, and the general thunders back. That's the verb Seligman uses. He thundered that, no, we don't need a pilot test. There's already so much evidence supporting this approach that we just want to roll it out to the whole army. And that's sort of like a case study in how not to try an experimental new thing, like to just rush full speed ahead without testing it at all. And, you know, once the army establishes a program like that and has paid for it, it's probably going to be pretty difficult to to unwind it. And when he wrote this in his book, was he saying like, was this an argument for like, yes, this is so effective? Or was he like, this? was this an apology for wasting $500 million of taxpayer money? I mean, I think it's a little bit of ass covering because he uh, he was at presenting CSF, Comprehensive Soldier Fitness, the resultant program as something that had worked. I think this is him showing to the reader how impressed the military was with his research, but also with a little bit of ass covering, maybe like I wanted to do a pilot study. But no, he he treats this as a successful program. Oh, okay, so he still treats it as a successful program. Readers of this book will see that it's not a successful program. But what is the status of this today? It, it's basically as of last summer, it's basically still going on in the same form. It's changed its name a couple of times. Certain aspects have been switched out, but the key stuff is still there. And not only that, but the Air Force started its own version called Comprehensive Air Force Airman Fitness. Uh, the evidence just hasn't mattered. They they even they use this tool to measure whether it's working called the GAT, the Global Assessment Tool. Soldiers answer questions about their physical and mental well-being. 
that assessment tool doesn't even include like validated depression and PTSD scales. So the army collected all this data that can't even tell it anything about whether the program's working. It was just just a complete bungling of everything. Okay, so do you have an explanation for why once the data is in uh, and the message, and we could this will also apply when we in the next segment when we talk about implicit bias testing. Um, the data is in. We know that this isn't effective, but these institutions continue along this path. Do you have any insight into why that would be um, as opposed to saying like we need to just cut our losses and like do something that's actually that actually has results? I think there's like a certain institutional momentum and like we're going to talk about the implicit association test in the back half of the episode. But it's like once you've invested all that money and gotten so excited about it and put out the press releases – you know, actually digging through the evidence is not a fun task and is sort of technically complicated. So I think a lot of people in the army genuinely thought they were doing the right thing. Like, I don't think there's that much actual malice here. I do think there's some incompetence. Though. What about Seligman? I mean, do you think there's malice on his part? I mean, surely he's aware of the aware of the data. So I, I reached out to him when I was writing the chapter, and he remained convinced that the evidence base for the Penn Resilience Program w- was good. And he pointed me to another paper that didn't really say anything different. Even if that program was supported, there's that question that that you readily identified of like bringing it from school kids to soldiers is such a leap. I, I don't. I think positive psychology as a movement has like some of the same weaknesses as self help, where it just like overclaims and overestimates its own abilities to improve people's lives. So the chapter also has a lot of stuff about the history of positive psychology. And there's a great uh, Barbara Ehrenreich book called uh, Brightsided about positive thinking, positive psychology that I, I borrow from a little bit. Um, okay. So it, so this is a waste of time and money. What would actually be effective uh, in terms of preventing PTSD in soldiers or, or treating it? Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's the key difference is like it would be amazing if we could just like pile a bunch of soldiers in a room and give them an intervention that could prevent PTSD. Make, Do, show them a video. Show them a video of us podcasting. Uh, <laughs> That'll build resilience. There, we don't have any evidence for like big scalable programs that can prevent PTSD. There are these approaches to treating it. The two that I focus on uh, briefly are uh, cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. Both of them are like one-on-one therapies that are pretty intense and involve actually sitting with your trauma and trying to unpack it and figure out what's bothering you. It's not easy. It's like really difficult work. And I I have some great quotes from a PTSD expert named Patricia Rezik, who developed one of these programs, who was very skeptical of the Army's approach and was just like, I wasn't consulted on this. Other experts weren't. I think treating PTSD is really hard and not photogenic and not inspiring in the way comprehensive soldier fitness was. You know, I think I may have just thought of a way to prevent PTSD. This is big. Go for it. Stop sending troops into war zones. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> oh, right. I'm sorry. We have a military industrial complex to take care of. <laughs> of all the pie in the sky bullshit ideas in my book, not sending 18 year olds to get blown up in Fallujah is the most ridiculous one I've ever heard. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What a joker. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to say about this chapter before we move on to implicit associations? No, I mean, this is this is the chapter I'm sort of most excited about and that I think has the most original reporting. I'm lucky that I was able to just sort of like wander into this because it's shocking how little attention this received from most journalists other than like two guys who I mentioned in the chapter and, and whose work was helpful to me. But um, 
No, I think this is a scandal in plain sight. And any I, I think it's totally nonpartisan. Like if you care about people in the military, this should upset you. If you care about wasting taxpayer money, this should upset you. It's just, it's crazy to me it hasn't uh, caught on more as a scandal, but I hope my book spreads the word a little bit. Okay, I just Googled the Secretary of Defense, and apparently it's someone named Lloyd Austin. So if anybody knows Lloyd Austin, if you could please get him a copy of Jesse's book, The Quick Fix, you could save us, possibly save all of us taxpayers some money. Just DM DM him on Twitter, creep right into his DMs, and start uh, just spamming links to my book. And if that doesn't work, you can just go outside his house and just read it loudly. <laughs> Direct <Yeah>. action. Direct <laughs> action, baby. <laughs> All right, shall we uh, take an ad break and then proceed? Let's do it. Jesse, have I told you about my butthole lately? No, it's been way too long. Really? I thought I put you on my mailing list. Anyway, my friends, family, neighbors, mailmen, and regular listeners of this podcast are probably aware that I really love my Hello Tushy modern bidet attachment. In fact, using a regular toilet is such a pain in the ass that I haven't left my house in over a year. I thought that was because of the pandemic. Oh, what pandemic? Uh, we can we can talk about that later. Not sure what you're talking about, Jesse, but the Hello Tushy modern bidet attaches to your existing toilet and it requires no electricity or additional plumbing, so it cuts toilet paper use by 80%. 80%? That That's good to hear because I wasted my entire toilet paper budget on an army of sock puppet accounts to harass my Twitter enemies. Sounds like a great investment, Jesse. Plus, every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Already got a tush on your pot? Upgrade to the new 3.0 model. If you're new to the revolution, join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean butt with every flush. If you want to experience the future of toileting, go to hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off plus free shipping. Get 10% off plus free shipping and get your butt clean at hellotushy.com slash barpod. That's hellotushy.com slash barpod. All right. So, Katie, have you ever taken an implicit association test? I have. I've taken a bunch of them, actually. What were your results? Lay them out. I Okay. I don't remember all of them. I was biased against fat people and in favor of gay people. I, those were the only two I remember. So you, you're a fan of fat gays? No, no, no. I'm, I'm fat phobic, but I like gays. Yeah. So I, the, I only took one. I am actually lightly racist against white people. Oh, that is excellent news. Yeah, it's great. Because... You know, you need to put that on your dating profile. Yes, I was scientifically or your Twitter bio. proven that I'm I'm that kind of racist, which isn't as bad. Um, all right, so the the other chapter in my book I sort of want to talk about is about the implicit association test. Well, I think the CSF story is very important. I think this one touches a little bit more on like this podcast wheelhouse. I think that's a mixed metaphor, but that's okay. Uh, okay, so the IIT, you sit down. You, it says like hit I if you see a white face or a good word, like a positive word. Hit E if you see a black face or a negative word, and then it flips. And the basic idea is that the easier it is for you to connect good stimuli with white faces versus good stimuli with black faces, meaning which takes longer, that tells you whether you're unconsciously biased against black or white people. Uh, the test came out in 1998. Mazarin Banaji of Harvard, Anthony Greenwald of Washington, at least that's where they are now. This test like totally revolutionized the way Americans talk about race. Uh, it, it, it really promoted this idea that 
we're carrying around these implicit biases in our head and those biases bleed out and affect how we interact with people in the real world. So I, I think I'm treating you equitably, Katie, but my anti-lesbian unconscious bias makes me into a little bit of a dick. Well, that explains a lot, Jesse. It really does. So this test was accepted by everybody, like companies, schools, major broadcast networks, NPR. Tempo. Yeah, I heard about it. I'm sure I heard about it on, on uh, NPR, I think like a Freakonomics or something like that. Yeah. And, and it was often presented as this like moment of jarring self-insight where you take the test and then you talk about how embarrassed you are to get the result. I mean, that's even what the founders did. <laughs> Yeah. And as I point out in my book, like a lot of questions have been raised about the accuracy of this test. And it isn't clear exactly what it's even measuring because you're basically taking like a, a small millisecond level reaction time difference and you're just assuming this means the person harbors unconscious negative feelings against this whole group, which has always been a little... That's quite a leap. It is, it is a leap. And that's like what's true in so much of my book is like you take an experiment in one sort of uh, contrived setting and you just assume it has like real world relevance. Uh, it's the problem of external validity as psychologists call it. So there was like a lot of argument about this in the research literature, but in 2015, the test co-creators and a third researcher wrote in a paper that they don't think this test should be used to diagnose individuals because it's too noisy. This was after years of them saying that it like offered a powerful look inside your unconscious in a way that predicted your behavior. But then it was just like, well, guess it doesn't do that. And what's crazy is that like six years later, it, it there's been some pushback. I'd like to think I contributed to it with like that article I wrote, but people really still accept this. And the Today Show just did like a gushing segment on it uh, that Mazarin Banaji was on, uh, I think three weeks ago. So it's to me like really a zombie idea at this point. And it's just I don't know. There's something so appealing about this idea that we can measure our unconscious bias that people can't stop taking it. Yeah. So, so I mean, I think researchers think that maybe part of what it's measuring is implicit bias. There's also some evidence that it just measures our like familiarity with stereotypes. So there's this one study where researchers made up a fake group called Noffians, N-O-F-F-I-A-N-S. And they got the the experimental subjects, I think they were college students, to believe Noffians were downtrodden. And then the kids scored as biased against Noffians, a fake group on an IAT. So it's like pretty easy to manipulate it that way. And oh, it's totally easy to manipulate. I mean, I, I've taken it enough times so that if you take it once and you take it a couple hour, of hours later, you can get a different result. You can game it really easily. If you want to show that you are biased against white people, which I can see why people would want to ha get that result, um, you can do it. It's not hard. Yeah. And even if you aren't trying to game it, um, I, I think the, te the creators argue it's not gameable. I, I don't see how it's not gameable. It seems pretty easy to game. I've gamed it. You, it's gameable. You, you literally said, I'm going to push my score in this direction, and, and that worked? I was con When I took the test about the, the bias against gay people, I was conscious of the fact that I did not want to appear to be biased against gay people. Yeah, and and I mean, so it, it has this problem with a, a characteristic called test-retest reliability, where even if you aren't trying to game it, if you take it once and then you take it again, you'll get very different scores. So the, the way researchers uh, treat that issue of test-retest reliability the IAT would not have been accepted for widespread use if it had been a test of like anxiety or depression. It's just way noisier than the instruments they usually use. But because it was so new and because it's addressing a social problem everyone wants to solve, it became like this, this juggernaut. And 
I guess what I'm most interested in is something we've talked a lot about on the show, which is just like the individualization of everything and this idea that when it comes to problems like race, you know, the effort should be on white people sort of finding their internal bias and grappling with it or banishing it. And that quest like takes on a lot of different forms, I feel like. Right. And it's directly at odds with this other idea that the, that race is, uh, racism is a structural issue, a systemic issue. Um, if you're saying it's a, a systemic issue and a structural issue, then, then, a, then addressing an individual's internal bias isn't actually going to change anything. What's so weird is that for decades, like really smart race theorists have said that, have said like the point is not to like measure individual's level of bias. I mean, uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva wrote a book called Racism Without Racist. And the whole, one of his main points is like, you don't need, like racism can continue even in the absence of individual racists. So the test was this weird throwback where after what felt like decades of progress in that direction of understanding that this is more complicated than individual feelings, suddenly all we're talking about is individual feelings. And what's weird is that has only gotten more intense because, you know, of Robin D'Angelo. That's what I'm saying. Like Robin D'Angelo makes the IAT look like just a, a nice little game you play on a Sunday picnic. That the Robin D'Angelo thing, it, this shit gets like really religious almost. Can you give us an example of the difference between um, this individual racism and structural racism? Like, what's a real a real world example of structural racism? So. This gets complicated. And to my mind, some people are, on the one hand, some people are too skeptical that structural racism exists. On the other hand, sometimes when people talk about structural racism, they don't give good examples. So to me, like, if you have black neighborhoods uh, where where poverty has been concentrated by specific urban policy decisions from times when, like, there are plenty of people from then still alive today, I, I, I think it's very easy to draw a straight line between some public policy decisions that were explicitly racist and outcomes today. Like if some neighborhoods get trapped and the problem is the way that manifests is like, you know, I'm, I'm from a suburb where if you want to smoke pot, you can find a place to smoke pot in peace. If, if you have an area where people don't have a lot of living space and there's more street life and the police crack down more, you can have enforcement be the same. Like all they're doing is like rounding up people who smoke pot on the street. Uh, You know, imagine it's a few years ago and pot was less legal than it is now. You can't really point to the cops being individually racist, but you can say this practice is rooted in racism or is rooted in the fact that by dint of being black, people in this community didn't have access to more space and are stuck in this particular location that is policed a different way. The problem is you can often find some counterexample of of white poverty, which isn't statistically as common among whites, but certainly exists, of cops treating people in those situations really poorly. And I think that's sort of often the strongest counterexample to claims of structural racism, even though on balance, I think structural racism is real. It just seems obvious to me that given that, like in the broad sweep of American history, legal racism ended basically 30 seconds ago, uh, we're, we're still going to experience echoes of it but and, and you're talking about the civil rights act right yeah although i mean a lot of a lot of you know that was certain most forms of legal racism ended but a lot of you know hardcore racism in terms of who's allowed to live where didn't end then and i mean this just gets back to my gripe with the iat is like once you assume that the reason for these disparate outcomes is implicit bias people get very fixated on that and i don't think anyone's ever really proven that implicit bias can explain more than 
you know, explicit bias or structural racism or, or even just situations where it's really class and lack of access to opportunity. But if you go back a few generations, you can connect it to racism. Then it's just so strange to me that the focus is so much on implicit bias, despite how thin the evidence is there. And I really think it's like this thing of you give a kid a shiny new toy and he ignores all his other toys. Like we have this cool test that lets us measure implicit bias. Therefore, implicit bias must be a big deal. But that's sort of like a, a tail wagging the dog. Like that that shouldn't determine what we spend the most time talking about. Okay, so we know through reading The Quick Fix by Jesse Single that the implicit associations test is not measuring or is likely not measuring implicit bias. But what do we actually know about implicit bias itself? Does implicit bias exist? Just to slip into pedantic reply guy mode again, I, I think the test is probably measuring something like implicit bias, but then a bunch of other stuff too. And you can't tell what's what uh, with an individual reading of a score. Implicit bias, I think, has to be real because the way our brains work is, is, is we seek patterns and we make associations. So if you grow up in a wealthy white suburb and it's the 80s and most of your exposure to black people are like shows like Cops or gangster movies or sports. You're, you're- hey, there's also The Cosby Show. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Oh, did you did you hear about? The, I'll fill you in on why that's problematic. After I'm not sure you heard about that. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it, it seems impossible that our brain does not form certain associations that could have some impact. But that's a really different question of whether we can measure them with a brief computer task, and then whether, based on your IAT score, you can predict how you're going to react in different settings where there's like a lot of other forces, like. You know, it could be the case that you have implicit bias, but you have a black colleague at work who you grow close to and you treat them like everyone else. There, there's just – this stuff is really complicated. Until Robin D'Angelo comes and puts you in your separate race-based <laughs> affinity groups. At which point you become terrified that you'll traumatize him by co- complimenting his suit, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, this might be something that you don't want to wade in on and that's totally fine. Um, but if we – let's presuppose for a moment that implicit bias is a real thing that exists. I think – we can – I don't know if we can 100 percent say this, but we can say with 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 some measure of certainty that, that people do have some sort of bias. How do we break this down in terms of sort of nature-nurture? How much of this do we know is cultural and how much of it could be biological? What do you mean by bi- biological? Do you think that there's something innate in humans that makes us racist? I th- yeah yeah they're it I th- okay so I think our our cognitive architecture makes it so that we can make a big deal out of differences that don't matter a lot so like you think of taking race out of it for a minute you think of of Christian sects that go to war for centuries Christians don't have sex <laughs> Christian sects hardcore <laughs> Christian sects no you think of different types of Christianity that will go to war for centuries over these minor doctrinal disputes and they managed to convince themselves that they're the good guys those other guys who worship the cross at a slightly different angle or whatever are are evil you know that's there's an element of biology there just that we have this very strong in-group out-group module in our brains and i think racial differences while being mostly fake uh even at the level of biology like there's very little that's real about race in terms of black versus white there's something there i don't want to go down the full there's nothing there there's like Certain elements of race are real genetically in terms of, um, you know, Ashkenazi Jews being more likely to get different diseases and stuff. Uh, but 
our, our brains can really take like irrelevant stuff and make them a big deal. So in that sense, yes, I think our, our biology really makes us susceptible to hating other people over superficial bullshit. But I think our brains also give us the capacity to realize that superficial bullshit is superficial bullshit and, and make those barriers not matter. And that's part of why, as we've talked about on the show, I think the present turn away from like the colorblind ideal to inserting race and identity into every single interaction in some cases, I don't think that meshes well with our brains. I think you're going to have people conditioned to think that these really superficial identity characteristics matter a lot. And I don't see how that could possibly lead anywhere good. Uh, might have, in fact, the opposite of the intended effect. Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, I'm, we... Everyone knows we don't disagree on this stuff. Maybe at some point we should have someone come on and steel man the case for injecting more identity into stuff. But I guess, yeah, my my closing note is just like it's interesting to me how much of the current conversation about race has been, I think, hijacked by like neurotic white liberals who are really fascinated uh, in some narcissistic sense with their own bias. And I often have trouble understanding exactly what their like strategy is for how all this navel gazing is going to lead to real world change. And a cynical part of me thinks that this is a way to avoid making real world change. If we're all just sitting around taking IATs and listening to Robin D'Angelo all day. Well, that's one thing that you talk about in in the book is you talk about the diversity industry that uh, started in the 1980s. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so so the Civil Rights Act sort of created this market because when certain acts on behalf of companies or the leaders became uh, illegal, you needed someone to train you about what you can and can't do. And diversity training has run the gamut from like really vanilla stuff like, hey, don't smack your coworker's ass, that's illegal, to – Robin D'Angelo stuff where it gets very, very intense and almost spiritual and, and underpinned by blame and accusation. There's very little evidence that any of these programs really work. And I think the average HR manager who's trying to figure out like what to do to tick the diversity training box can easily be led astray into stuff that is just nonsense or even counterproductive. So people often, people who are otherwise very attendant to like what capitalism does and don't like capitalism will then be very credulous and not recognize the role capitalism plays in generating diversity trainings that don't really do anything. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's capitalism because I don't know that if the if the government itself were like in charge of our financial structure that this would be any different. I mean, we have seen just like what talking about in the previous segment, talking about uh, about this, this, these PTSD treatments that are being employed by the government, um, so I, so so I think maybe consumerism might also be be to blame here, not just not just capitalism. Um, but that is one thing that I noticed from your book that these are these are money makers. These are money making industries. Um, and if you look at you know people like Robin D'Angelo, they can be hugely hugely profitable. And I would guess that the same is probably true of Martin uh, Seligman. He probably got rich off of uh, off of his bullshit bullshit theories too. These guys tend to make a lot of money. Uh, Seligman has his positive psychology center at UPenn, I think, does very well. They sell the Penn Resilience Program and versions of it, despite this real lack of evidence to a, to adult institutions all over the place, despite the fact that even among kids, there isn't great evidence it works. It's just – it's a real cottage industry. It ties into this, this whole other um, fascination with resilience – that I, I only sort of sideswipe in the book. I don't get into it that much, but that's another area where like everyone wants to build resilience. No one really defines it carefully or knows how to do so, but resilience is a really big business. So 
Yeah, I, I think when the profit motive collides with science, some bad stuff can happen, and that uh, shouldn't surprise us. Okay, Jesse, if you were world dictator and you were tasked with eliminating racism um, in the United States, what would your tactic be? I assume it would not be to make everybody take implicit associations tests. First, I would budget $5 a month to every American household for a blocked and reported Patreon subscription. <laughs> Very fair. I would focus more on the to the trend is totally away from this idea of the contact hypothesis, which is trying to set up environments where people I, I think even this has its limitations. I think all this shit is structural. I think if if people grew up in diverse settings where white and black and yellow and brown people all were doctors and lawyers and had opportunity, I, I think a lot of problems with racism would solve themselves because they stem on some level from unfamiliarity and, and from being able to see someone as the other. And it's weird that that's a controversial idea. People want to act like white supremacy is this like unknowable virus that just infects us from the media. I think it really has to do with whether or not you are around people from different um, backgrounds. Uh, that said, I would focus on the, the contact hypothesis, which is this idea that if you get people from different backgrounds to engage in meaningful ways with one another, with shared goals under conditions of relative equality, those are the interventions that seem to have the most evidence behind them. Of course, a lot of them are sort of verboten these days because we're supposed to pretend that colorblindness is a bad thing and not talking about race is a bad thing. Uh, so contact hypothesis is a good thing to look into. I'll, I'll link to an article I wrote about it forever ago. Yeah. Also, for people who are newer to the show, we did um, a couple of episodes about Robin D'Angelo and her book, White Fragility. Uh, one of those episodes was an interview with a woman who went through a year of diversity training with Robin D'Angelo herself. Um, I highly recommend uh, this podcast for people who want a deep dive into what actually takes place at these trainings. It's kind of disturbing. Um, and we'll put a link to the show in the show notes. It's disturbing, but it's also pretty hilarious, to be honest. <laughs> it is disturbing, but also, like, darkly funny. Uh, I think that was all I wanted to say about the IAT. Should I do my – do you have any other questions about it? Any other thoughts, or should I just do my closing spiel? Yeah. My only other question is, how does this end? You know, you have this book out. Um, I was a, a, like, true believer in the IAT until I read your reporting on this in, in New York Magazine a couple years ago. Um, and clearly, people are still doing these trainings. So the message that this has been, even though the creators of this test have acknowledged in some ways that it's not effective, um, the trainings are still happening. And I went to the IAT website today, and Jesse, like, let me read you the one thing on the website that sort of hints at the idea that this might not actually be effective. Uh, there's a disclaimer and it reads, important disclaimer, in reporting to you results of any IAT test that you take, we will mention possible interpretations that have a basis in research done at the University of Washington, University of Virginia, Harvard University, and Yale University with these tests. However, these universities, as well as the individual researchers who have contributed to the site, make no claim for the validity of the su suggested interpretations. If you are unprepared to encounter interpretations that you might find objectionable, please do not proceed further. That's it. That's the, and you got to kind of like, I mean, what they're saying is they don't really, they can't really say they believe in any of it, but I assume that's a disclaimer that's hard to even find. I, well, it's no, it's right there on the website, but it's uh, it's it's written in, in a way that sort of obfuscates what we actually know about this test. Right, because what they say about, read the part about validity one more time, just that like clause or sentence. These universities, as well as individual researchers who have contributed to the site, make no claim for the validity of the suggested interpretations. <laughs> make no claim for the validity is a sign 
scientific sounding way of saying we we don't know what this meant. I mean, that's I, I didn't even know that. You're teaching me about my own book, Katie Herzog. Okay. Well, at the very end, it says you may prefer to examine general information about the IAT before deciding whether or not to proceed. So basically, what they're saying is Google it. Um, so so I'm sure people are still taking this test. There's no no like frank disclaimer up front that says we don't know what this measures, if anything. Um, this test is, is maybe bullshit. Um, you know, so people are still taking it. Institutions, universities, corporations are still using it, uh, despite the fact that that like the data is in. Um, even you know, uh, Tony Greenwald from the University of Washington, one of the creators, has not entirely, but has partially disavowed uh, the you know the sort of broader conclusions from this. And people are still using it. Um, you mentioned in in the at the beginning of the chapter that Starbucks um, did this, like shut down all of their stores and did this implicit bias training a couple years ago after some after a manager in Philadelphia kicked some black guys out of the store. Um, so people are still using this and like, how do we, how does this change? You know, that's the question. I mean, what can you do other than point out over and over again, these, these questions and try to disincentivize people from overclaiming? Um, you can write books about it. You can write books about it. Or you can buy books about it. That most importantly, you can buy books about it. Be part of the solution, not the problem. Um, last thing, uh, speaking of Starbucks, uh, a friend of the pod, Kala Fasane did a, a, a great, series on This American Life or a great episode on This American Life specifically about the Starbucks training. I highly recommend listening to it and we will put it in the show notes. Yes. And yeah, in closing, I would just say one more time, uh, please consider buying the book. If any of this sounds interesting to you, you would be surprised at, without going into details, the number of books sold doesn't like it's it's doable. If if a significant number of people listening to this podcast are able to order, it will make a very big difference to me. Dave Rubin had a bestseller. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm no Dave Rubin. I'm not trying to claim otherwise, but uh, I can mean that in several different ways. Uh, yeah, I, I hope this this sounds interesting to people. I'll also post some links to interviews and stuff I've done on it. If you can't afford it or for whatever other reason don't want to order, I totally understand. But I appreciate. Uh, Katie giving over the platform to letting me shill my book. We're also going to have a, a bonus episode tomorrow where we're, we're just going to post the introductory chapter of the audiobook, right? I didn't know that, but that sounds great. <laughs> did we talk about that? We did not talk about it, but I love the idea. We did. All right. Yeah, well, well I was ignoring you. I have coronavirus. <laughs> well, I hope that's okay with you, Katie, because that's what we're doing, goddammit. I think it's great. I uh, I look forward to hearing your uh, your nasally voice uh, and uh, reading some, doing some professional voiceovers. Still can't believe they let me do that. They should have let me do it. They really should have, but I don't want to give you money. Um. Okay. Last thing. If anybody buys this book and runs into me on the street with your copy of it, I will sign it for you. Yeah. All, all any autograph requests, I'm just referring to Katie. She can sign it uh, with her own name, which is yeah. valuable in a, in a different way. I'll mark out the dedication and put to Katie, and then I'll sign it for you. Did did we have any other non-book things we wanted to talk about? Yeah. Um, so uh, as some people might be aware, our patrons in particular, there's a little bit of drama going on on the, on the Patreon only, the patron only feed. Um, Patreon is our, our subscription program. Uh, you get three episodes a month plus our entire back catalog, dozens of shows if you join for just $5 a month. The last couple of weeks have been a little bit tense. Um, we did a show on the Patreon uh, feed last week about Graham Linehan, a British satirist and television writer who is very mad at me right now. Seems less mad at you, but very mad at me. If this doesn't make any sense to you, you can fill in by joining the Patreon. 
Our next episode, which we're going to record sometime early next week or earlier this week, depending on when you're listening to this, is going to be answering some of the questions, concerns, comments, and corrections about that particular episode. Um, uh, it's it's pretty weird shit going on over there. Um, let's just say it is not at this point trans activists who are mad at us. It is, in fact, they were they're they're noted enemies. Yeah, there was. It was a big week or two online for horseshoe theory. Maybe I can just leave it at that. Yeah. Anyway, if this makes no sense, join the Patreon. Join the Patreon no matter what else you do, except if the Patreon will reduce the chance of you buy my book. I don't want to order these things, but <laughs> buy my book. No, jo- book. join the Patreon. Patreon.com slash watch report, but buy my book. Join Amazon the Patreon. Now. Or IndieBound, right? Yeah, whatever. Go to your local bookstore in person like a human being for once. Come on. Get out of your house. Put your mask on. Wear a mask. Uh, as always, you can reach us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We have a lovely subreddit where I did an AMA uh, about my book, reddit.com slash r slash reported. Our faithful mod, Soft and Chewy. Uh, thank you to him for hosting that. Uh, and then rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I believe we're at 4.7. Without your vigilance, there's always a risk of us dropping to 4.6, which would be calamitous. I mean, can you imagine? I cannot. It's just, it's too horrible to imagine. I have PTSD just thinking about it. Well, I, I know how to treat that. Uh, one other contact <laughs> or housekeeping things as my brain shuts down from the coronavirus vaccine, what else am I forgetting? We have a merch store, barpod.org. You can buy hoodies. You can buy tote bags. You can buy mugs. You can you can dress yourself entirely in blocked and reported merch. People you look great. People think it's like some kind of shtick or that I'm trying to manipulate you when I say we sell 100 million units a day and that if you don't have this gear, you're like going to be the only person left on your block. But that's just the truth, right? That's where we are. I mean, would you lie? No. Would we lie? Absolutely not. I hate lying. Uh, Okay, I believe that is it. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, please buy my book. Please buy my book. Please buy my book. And I'm Katie Herzog. If you buy Jesse's book, he'll shut the fuck up about it. (laughs) 